Friday of a short week, but there's still plenty of news to talk about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Estalfi making her third consecutive appearance this week because Leila Tassi is taking some time off. Let's begin. Ohio's Senator J.D. Vance tried to launch a new battlefront in the culture war, but was promptly shut down by a Democrat who belittled him for putting gimmicks ahead of the people. Why does Ohio elect politicians who prefer to make government a three-ranked circus instead of working to improve our lives? Laura, what was Vance pushing for when he was humiliated on the national stage? I feel like Vance and Jim Jordan could maybe go on the road with their own show called Look at Me, I'm a Conservative. It could even be like a reality competition show to see who introduces the most conservative and least likely to pass bill. But this is what we're talking about is the anti-mask freedom to breathe bill. He forced a vote on Thursday. Basically, it's this procedure meant for non-controversial legislation can be stopped by a single objection, which is what Massachusetts Democrat Ed Markey did. And what Vance wants to do is prohibit any federal official, including the president, from requiring masks anywhere, basically, and prohibit any private businesses or organizations from refusing to serve people who don't wear masks. Obviously, this is not going anywhere. And what Markey said, and I loved this, was the GOP really stands for right now, gimmicks over people. And that it was a little more than an attempt by Republicans to dismantle public health infrastructure that had to be built to deal with the 1918 influenza epidemic. Yeah, let's put this into the proper context. COVID is on the march. We've had nine Mm -hmm. straight weeks in Ohio of it going up. When kids went back to school, we're hearing anecdotally that they're dropping like flies to COVID. They're spreading it. People are wearing masks again. This is an uh, previously unseen variant, so almost nobody has immunity to it. So there's a danger. People are going to get sick, and a percentage of those people are going to get really sick, and a smaller percentage are going to die. Instead of using this moment to remind people of all the things they can do to keep themselves safe, our senator is going on the warpath to limit anything we can do. Remember, the Republicans are the ones that want government to be local control. They don't want Mm -hmm. the federal government in your life, except when it's convenient for him to strut around like a, a spring chicken trying to go, look at me, look at me. Exactly what Lars said. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't make the title of that thing the Republicans, this conservative war. I would come up with some other choice words for what they're doing. But but this is sad because leaders should lead. Here's a rare moment where you could stand up and say, look, I know everybody has been fighting about how we dealt with COVID three and a half years ago when it started. And there's a lot of division, but it's out there again. You're at mm-hmm. risk. Let's talk to the public health officials about how you yourself, without government interference, can keep yourself safe. And he's not because well, he's a Jim Jordan wannabe. What is clear is that he knew this wasn't going to pass. I mean, one single objection and it's done, right? So obviously there's going right. to be lots of objection. He just wanted to put it out there to create divisiveness right. because he's saying, oh, but if, the, if anybody speaks against this, it means that mask mandates are imminent and we're going to have to face this again. No one's saying that. There's no, no, no march afoot to 
make masks mandatory. But you're right. Instead of, and we talk about this with the Civil Discourse Project all the time, instead of bringing everyone together on what we could agree with, he is purposely parting people and trying to get them to face off because that is the way I think a lot of politicians are trying to gain traction and you know, maybe, yeah. hand, you know, donations. I don't know exactly what the end goal is, but it is not unity. Right. It's gross is what it is. Instead of being a leader in the style of a George Voinovich or a John Glenn, he's he's out there making a circus show. You're right. He knew it wouldn't pass. That wasn't his mm-hmm. point. It was to draw attention to himself. I'm, I think the Democrats dealt with this so effectively. They made him look like such a little man, uh, you know, just puny in what he's doing. But but it's bad. And it's, again, putting Ohio on the national map for electing clowns that don't really care about keeping people safe. That's not what this is about. And he he did get some kudos, right, when he looked at East Palestine and he co-sponsored some real legislation, which is what the Democrats would like him to focus on instead of what they called silly performance art. He has introduced a lot of bills that are not going anywhere. It seems just to stamp his name on them saying, here's what I stand for. I want to be this yeah. really out there politician. Let me ask you. He's Yes, he's been to East Palestine. He talks about East Palestine all the time. Have you ever once heard him talk about gun violence in Cleveland and how no. it's wiping no, out no, a generation no. No. of young men? No. I, I'm just saying the rail safety bill is at least bipartisan yeah. co-sponsored legislation that seems to be doing some good and has a real point. Yeah. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Does anyone trust First Energy to follow through on its proposal to get more money from Ohioans to reinforce its infrastructure against climate change? Or do most people think this is just another way for this corrupt utility to pocket more cash? I guess the real question, Lisa, is will anyone ever trust First Energy on anything again? What's the proposal? Yeah, I think we're going to be watching them like hawks from now on. But First Energy submitted its eight-year electric security plan with the Public Utilities Commission back in April. This plan calls for passing on costs for hardening infrastructure against climate change and equipment maintenance to customers. If this is approved, and it would start next June, and it could cause the average customer cost them about $2.35 to $4 a month on their bills. Now, these electric security plans cap the amount that can be passed on to customers, and they will have to spend the money first to do so. So it's not like they can do this preemptively. So they would do this in the form of cost recovery and rider charges that are fees that are added onto your distribution portion of your bill. They can't be avoided because they are in the distribution portion of your bill. So First Energy must submit documentation and witness testimony to prove the need for this money, and then they'll move on to an evidentiary hearing, or they can come to a settlement before the hearing occurs. The Ohio Consumers Council opposes it. They filed a motion to intervene. Customers, they say, are already dealing with higher rates and inflation. Other groups have also filed motions to uh, intervene, including some unions and business groups. Look, there's no doubt that we need investment in infrastructure because First Energy has failed to do any investment in infrastructure since the beginning of time. They've been too busy squandering their millions on bribery. The the problem is the PUCO never has rigor to the accountability. If, If First Energy would come in and show us all the list of things they're doing, the transformers they're they're maintaining and, and the wires they're replacing and what they're doing to strengthen the system, line item by line item by line item, location by location, 
okay, then, then sure, we should spend that money because people are losing power left and right. But there's never any rigor. And in the past, they just take the money. And so there, there has not been investment. The only thing they've done is they've trimmed some trees because they caught such hell after the big blackout. 15 years ago. I, I, it, I'm glad the Consumer Council is opposing it because I don't think anybody trusts First Energy. Do you? Does anybody on this podcast trust First Energy to do what it says? No. And, you know, I'm still mad that they got rid of the renewable energy subsidies. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just it's one of those where they have burned themselves so badly by their corrupt ways that nobody trusts them. And the only way to get that trust back is if the PUCO, which was led by a corrupt leader until he got outed, does its job and says, OK, yes, we will invest. We want to see every dime and how it's spent and where so we can show Ohio. Don't trust them. We're going to have real accountability. And given the way the PUCO operates, it's always been in the pocket of the utilities. I don't see that happening. And if you compare it to the story we just talked about yesterday about Dominion being bought by a Canadian company, the reason that company bought them, Enbridge, is because they were they had a robust infrastructure plan that they were carrying out. That we've seen. We've seen them digging up the lines. We've seen them in our basements replacing meters. You, you, they've done the work. They've maintained their their property. It's the You're right. It's the polar opposite of First Energy, which has just been a terrible utility for Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the battle over congressional district lines in Ohio dead for now? And what does it mean for 2024, Courtney? Yeah, for the short, short term, it is dead. The The groups that were challenging these maps that were previously ruled unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court, the congressional map that was used in 2022, they, they asked for their challenges to be dropped. And the Ohio Supreme Court on Thursday agreed without comment to dismiss these legal challenges to the map. Now, these groups, which include the League of Women Voters of Ohio, had had you know their stated reasons for why they sought to drop their own cases. They didn't want voters to be in limbo ahead of next year's congressional election. But they also feared that if the current map is tossed out, Ohio Republicans who dominate the current redistricting process would draw an even more map, an even more GOP friendly map than the one that's currently in place. And then further, this group who's been fighting this process, they want to focus their time and efforts on passing a proposed overhaul of the redistricting system. So they're kind of picking and choosing their battles here. And and like I said, the Ohio Supreme Court didn't have anything to say about this, but we did get some criticism from Frank LaRose and Matt Huffman and, you know, two of the guys that were behind those maps previously ruled unconstitutional. But that was a ruling. It's worth noting that the U.S. Supreme Court vacated earlier this year. Well, they sent it back. They sent them back for for another round. That's why they were back before the Ohio Supreme Court. The the like the the well, we talked about this the other day when they proposed to dismiss these counts, and the only thing that remained was whether the Republicans wanting to make gerrymandering worse would have somehow pulled some procedural process to keep the case alive, even though the plaintiffs didn't want to. That's almost impossible to do. But you never know in this state. You got a cooked Supreme Court. You got a cooked legislature. These guys are completely out of control. And so the rules don't matter anymore. It was good that this was dismissed because there was no point in fighting for one more election of these 
gerrymandered seats. We got to fix the problem, which is what Maureen O'Connor's about. Let's go to 2024. We'll get the, the same kind of thing we have. But hopefully by 2026, we'll have fair maps. Yeah, I, you know, I found some of the reaction in to this move. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Frank, Frank LaRose's statement um, uh, implied that that these groups challenging this case or these maps now suddenly consider the map to be constitutional and that they've wa- wasted taxpayer dollars in this court fight. And Yeah, but look, look, let's face it. Frank LaRose is the only person in Ohio who believes Frank LaRose has any credibility. Frank LaRose became the laughingstock of the nation, really, when issue one went down. He just had told fib after fib about that thing, and Ohio saw through him. He's a joke. He's the only one that doesn't appear to know it. So he keeps issuing these ridiculous statements like he stands for something, and nobody's buying. The guy has lost every ounce of credibility he ever had. So it's not surprising that he would do it. The only thing that's surprising is that he's not on that roadshow Laura talked about with Jim Jordan (laughs) and J.D. Vance. Anyway, it's good that this is done and we can move to fixing this permanently. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the latest high-powered Republican calling for state representative Bob Young of Summit County to resign over being arrested twice involving domestic violence? Laura. This is Governor Mike DeWine. He's telling reporters that Bob Young, who's from Green, should step down over the allegations. Obviously, he's been arrested twice. And he there's been a lot of people that have spoken out against him. 34 House members. Republicans, just over half of the chamber's GOP members, all signed a petition this week calling for his resignation. All but two of these, this is weird to me, are the Republicans who opposed House Speaker Jason Stevens and a contentious leadership ballot. I'm like, this this guy's run-ins with the law and his mistreatment of family members and allegations of abuse should be completely separate from any political fight over who the leader of the House is. So I'm not really sure why this is playing out that way. But Stevens is also called on Young to resign. He's been he removed Young from the committee committee leadership position last week. For Mike DeWine to do that is meaningful. Mike DeWine is one of the the few politicians in Ohio who doesn't speak in hyperbole and apocalyptic nonsense. I mean he's the opposite of JD Vance. But but he also understands the the importance of elected officials being clean. And I I still don't understand how Young's not in jail. We talked about it last week when he violated his his order by making phone calls and they gave him an ankle bracelet. It's like, does that stop you from making phone calls? No. I I mean, it's if it were anybody else, I think they'd be locked up. But because he's a, a state rep, he didn't get locked up. But but Mike, Dwayne is right. He shouldn't be serving. He's this is serious stuff. The case is mounting. He should do the right thing and walk away. He wouldn't even get off of the committee chairmanship. Stevens had to kick him off, as you said. So good for Mike DeWine for for speaking soberly about a significant leadership issue. I mean, he's still on the state payroll right now, right? He's getting paid. Yeah, although he lose, he did lose $9,000 when they kicked him out of the committee chair. But hey, look, just do the right thing, right? I mean, even if you believe you're innocent, do the right thing for your constituents. Walk away and deal with your personal stuff instead of trying to hold on. It never works. He won't hold on ultimately. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With all the cars being stolen in Cleveland, is it any wonder that we have what 
appears to be a pretty organized effort to resell them with fraudulent ID numbers. What do federal prosecutors allege a couple of guys were doing with stolen cars, Lisa? In Cleveland Federal Court, 35-year-old Eve Amicon of Tampa, Florida, and 27-year-old Andre Hargrove of Cleveland were charged with conspiracy to commit falsification, removing vehicle identification numbers or VINs, and conspiracy to own and operate a chop shop, although this is not exactly a chop shop because that's usually where cars are stripped for parts. So between December 2021 and February of this year, um, they apparently took in stolen cars from the Cleveland area and at least one vehicle from Georgia. So Amicon would provide the fake titles, the VINs and stickers to Hargrove, and then they would replace that information on several cars and resell them. So the operation, if you look at the timing, it kind of sprang up as the number of stolen cars increased very sharply in Cleveland and nationwide starting in late 2021, which is when the shop opened up. Um, Hargrove is currently in federal prison. He is also charged and that's for an unrelated drug trafficking case. He is also charged in Cuyahoga Common Police Court with 37 others in a similar theft and title fraud ring. Amicon was arrested this week in Florida. The thing I don't understand about this is that VIN numbers and computerization are pretty rigidly control the whole car system. I mean, the, the, I, so I, I just don't know how you can create a VIN number slap it on a car and that it doesn't send up red flags in any auto office where it gets registered because they have records of these things. And, and, and maybe they're not getting registered. Maybe the people who are buying them know that they're stolen. It just seems odd that you can create a phony VIN number and still register a car under it because they have so many checks and balances on these things. But I, I think, as you said, these cars aren't going to used car lots. I think they're just <laughs> being sold on the side. And I think the people that are buying them aren't asking questions. Yeah, uh, clearly. Well, I, we've been wondering, a lot of the stolen cars do get recovered because it's joyriders. But you've been wondering if there is somebody profiting by selling stolen cars. Good for the feds and tracking this one down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Justice Department is suddenly busy in Cleveland. In another case announced Thursday, Cleveland plays a big role in an ugly international malware case that was much bigger than Ohio. Courtney, what's it about? Yeah, after a years-long investigation, I think some of this goes back to 2014, federal prosecutors here in Cleveland and, and some other offices around the U.S., charged 14 people in connection with this Russia-based international cyber gang. It's The gang's known as TrickBot. It also morphed into a group called Conti. And this group really used, like you said, malware to extort and, and steal money from people all around the globe, allegedly. So nine of the 14 charged are charged here in Cleveland. And they're individuals from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And they're charged with things like conspiracy to commit computer fraud, wire fraud conspiracy, and and money laundering. These charges carry a maximum of 62 years in prison. But what's wild to me as part of this is these indictments were unsealed right at the same time that UK officials and the US Treasury Department announced sanctions against several of the folks named in these indictments. So this is a this is a big effort and it's reaching across to the pond to the UK. It, it's an international thing that's really Cleveland has been a, a major player here. 
And these, this group was vocal in supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is what happens when you have a country run by a complete despot like Putin. I mean, if this kind of thing were happening in this country, our own investigators would take it down. They would figure it out. But Putin supports this kind of stuff, which is causing problems across the entire planet. Uh, it's just fascinating how Cleveland keeps having a role in these international hacking cases. It's pretty cool that the FBI office here has the expertise to investigate these. Yeah, and, and it's worth noting here, UK officials this week, you know, said that this group worldwide extorted about $180 million. There were targets in Northeast Ohio. The indictment lays out how this group targeted Avon and Coventry schools here. So this is this is wide ranging. And like you said, you were talking about the connection to Putin and just the Russian government. UK officials said that that this group was receiving orders from from Russian intelligence. Yeah, you just can't wait for Putin to fall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Giant Eagle made big headlines when it got rid of single use plastic bags in its Cuyahoga County stores and has been charging for paper bags and trying to get people to bring their own reusable bags. Laura, how is Giant Eagle now changing its policy? It's getting rid of the paper bag charge. And this was big news on my community Facebook page. People were <laughs> really talking about it. And I don't know, people love grocery store stories. They always do well. So I don't know why they decided to do this. Some people thought it was because it was hard to keep track of who was taking the paper bags at the self-checkout. But Giant Eagle says, yep, we are removing the charge, so they'll be free. You can get your paper bags. But if you bring at least one reusable bag when checking out, you'll get loyalty reward points. And if you shop through Sunday, December 31st, you'll get this, you'll scan your Advantage card. You'll see two perks per transaction. I know the My Perks and the Fuel Perks are kind of confusing, but it's like, I scan my card. If they tell me I have a dollar off, I will take the dollar off whenever they give it to me. Yeah. I, I don't do rewards programs because it, it just results <laughs> in junk mail. The, 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 I, the, my problem, how often do you forget to bring your reusable bags? That the, We need a system where like your car tells you, you don't have your reusable bags, so go get a knucklehead or something. Because in the end, I see people that, that are smacking their foreheads in the lines like, oh, I forgot my bags. Uh, we just yeah, I, I think it depends on where you shop. Like I never forget my bags at Aldi, right? Because they've never provided the bags. Although I guess my husband did last week and had to buy. We've got some new reusable Aldi bags in our our hallway now. But yeah, it, it takes time. It's a habit you have to build. But I've definitely gone into Giant Eagle and been like, it's a really good thing. I carry a really big purse because I'm putting all my corn <laughs> in it. You know? You know Yeah, I just I I for some reason I haven't captured it. Maybe maybe several generations from now people will automatically do it. But I do wish there was some kind of reminder when I get into the car. Do you have your bags today? <laughs> you know, what? I do. I do want to note on this story, just because I was around covering county government when they first started debating that plastic Courtney, bag. Thing. I was around oh. covering, <laughs> covering county <laughs> government when they started debating. <laughs> Excuse me, when they continued debating, Laura. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, one of the arguments against that plastic bag bang back then was that the paper bags are not that friendly for the environment either. Right. They so they cost more to manufacture and they take a lot of energy. So right. this switch is kind of, I don't well, know. Although there is an argument to be made that the carrot is better than the stick, right? By giving people the perks that you're inducing them instead of penalizing them. 
uh, there's a there's there's a lesson for government there, right? You if you want people to behave themselves with masking and things, that you can use a carrot instead of a stick. You're listening to today in Ohio. The skin cancer that Jimmy Buffett died from is a rare one, but fast acting and usually terminal. It's a reminder of the dangers of the sun. So Gretchen Crowen looked at this. How many people diagnosed with the cancer that took Buffett, Lisa? Yeah, it's called Merkel cell carcinoma. Very aggressive, very rare. Only about two to 3,000 diagnoses a year in the USA. And if you compare that to non-melanoma skin cancers, that's 1 million diagnoses a year. So this cancer develops just underneath the skin and in hair follicles. And it's usually on areas most exposed to the sun. So your head, neck, arm, and legs. It's most commonly affecting white men age 60 to 80, which Jimmy Buffett fell right into that demographic. It displays as a flesh-colored bump, and it's very often misdiagnosed as some benign hyperplasia on your skin. Um, 80% of tumors are infected with something called the Merkel cell polyoma virus, which they think may have a role in its spread, but they're not sure yet. Research is ongoing. But the polyoma virus is endemic. Most people get this virus eventually, but most people don't develop Merkel cell cancer. And the interesting thing about this cancer is it's directly related to sun exposure, whereas melanoma, you can get melanoma where the sun doesn't shine. So new immunotherapies have revolutionized treatment of this. You know, it's still, you know, the the mortality rate is still kind of high, but Evolumab was approved back in 2017 for Merkel cell cancer and two more immunotherapies have been approved since. Yeah, it, I uh, I had not heard of this before his death, and so his death has spread the word of it. What's frightening about this is by the time it's diagnosed, you probably already have it all through your system, and you're not going to make it. It's very rare, I think, that people get it diagnosed at the very beginning before it is spread. That's correct. Yeah. And early diagnosis and treatment can result in successful outcomes and a good prognosis. But as you said, it's rarely caught in its early stages. And unfortunately, having worked at a cancer center, you know, these rare cancers don't attract the research funding because there's so, you know, it affects so few people. And then you don't also have the data to help inform your research either. When he spent most of his life on a boat where you're not only getting the rays from above, you're getting the reflected rays off of the water. So he had more exposure to sun than most. But it is a reminder that you should wear hats and sunblocks and they're in the worst part of the sun, long sleeves. Uh, his death brought a huge, genuine outpouring of people that really miss him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, you get the most fun story of the day. Cleveland's fine art scene was in the national news recently with allegations that one of the art museum's signature pieces was looted from Turkey. The statue is of Marcus Aurelius, who's best known through Richard Harris's portrayal of him in the movie Gladiator. He's way more interesting than the character in the movie. And given his role in our big national Cleveland-based story, we asked Joey Morona to write about him. Who was he? Yeah, this was a really fun one. Just to dive into this Roman emperor, like you said, New York authorities seized that that prize statue in the Cleveland Museum of Art. And, and the subject of that statue, Marcus Aurelius, he is among the most famous of Roman emperors, but maybe some folks don't, don't know the name as clearly as they know, say, Julius Caesar or Augustus or Nero. But for folks familiar with Aurelius from the movie Gladiator, 
in that film, he's really portrayed as a good guy, someone who embodies the Roman Republic's values. And Joey Morona talked to some art history professors and other folks to get the truth. And, and, and they tell us the truth's a bit more nuanced than that. So Aurelius ascended to power in AD 161. And when he died, that signaled the end of the Pax Romana, that the famous period of of wealth and prosperity in Rome that lasted for 200 years. He was the closer on that period. And, you know, it's good to know here that Aurelius was really kind of a battle emperor. He spent most of his reign on the battlefield, but he wasn't necessarily always a winner there. You know, Joey tells us how he lost one giant battle when when 20,000 Romans were killed. Um, and he did oversee then after that some, some changes to the army when a smallpox um, when smallpox broke out among the troops it really crippled Roman forces so Aurelius turned to recruiting slaves gladiators and criminals to replace them so basically in the movie they they kind of suggest his supposed desire to return Rome to a republic and we talked to Maggie Popkin over at Case Western she's an art history professor. She said, probably not so much. (laughs) (laughs) And she also said his son probably did not kill him like is portrayed in the movie. Nobody gives power away, as we know from the gerrymandering going on in Ohio. So that's that's why that was a bit fictional. The movie also gave the impression that this was the end of Rome's conquest of much of the world. And really, during his reign, there were serious fissures being made in the power of Rome. So it's a good story by Joey. We'll be talking about Marcus Aurelius as that criminal case goes through. It's good to see about him. We've had two really interesting history stories based on the news. We also did the profile on Mad Anthony Wayne we talked about earlier this week. Our readers love when history is in the news. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes out the short week. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. We'll be back next week talking about some very, very strong enterprise reporting we're planning to publish, including a story by Courtney. Look forward to it. We'll see you then. 